are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Morning, everyone. It really is uh, my delight to help out when I can. I, I do say that honestly. If you have your Bibles, a Bible, if you can turn to the last book of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. And so my attempt uh, today is to try to provide an overview of the last book of, of the Old Testament. And I want to try to do that uh, in, within the context of Malachi, of the, of the New Testament. And the reason that we can do that, we meaning look at the Old Testament in the context of the New Testament, is that we are told by Christ himself that all the Psalms, all of Moses, uh, all of the prophets point to him. And so my encouragement to us all is whenever we read the Old Testament, we are to look for Jesus Christ. And so we're going to try to do that today. Okay. Uh, one other thing I, I will ask of us today, and I'll just back up a minute and just say that uh, normally, um, and it's honorable and it's the right thing to do, speakers ought to provide an application of what Scripture says, how this applies to our lives today. And of course, that's what we want. Uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, and the reason I say that is because I'm going to ask you uh, to do it as I go through it, because it will not be a stretch by, of any kind when you read Malachi and put Malachi or some of the things that we're going to talk about in Malachi, put that in a context of our culture, put that in a context of our time, our world, our country, and you're going to say, oh my goodness, it was written for us today. I think that's what I hope that's what we're going to find. So just, uh, I'm going to read, again, for context purposes, not the four chapters, but I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Malachi, and I am reading from the New, the, uh, new American Standard. The oracle of the Lord, uh, sorry, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of wilderness. Though Edom, that's Esau, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build. But I will tear down, and men call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? 
You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, just uh, a bit of history very quickly. We're told by... Uh, biblical scholars, that from the writings of Malachi to the coming of Jesus Christ, this was a period of some 400 years, which scholars have labeled over the, the years, 400 silent years. And that is years which no word from God came to the people through the prophets. Malachi then, and I think it's significant as we look at Malachi, Malachi then is the last word of God until the coming of Jesus Christ. Scholars have also put Malachi some 75 to 100 years, probably closer to the 75, 100 years after Judah's return from Babylon, from Judah's 70 years in captivity, overlapping the last years of Nehemiah and part of Ezra's, uh, Ezra's ministry. And as we read Malachi, as always, Context is important in trying to understand some of the things that God says to the people, trying to help us understand God's point of view, if I can say that. And so when we go back from a historical perspective to the return from Babylon, first under Ezra, and then to start rebuilding the temple some years later under Nehemiah, uh, to start rebuilding Jerusalem, after their 70 years of captivity, we note, and again, you will read this in Ezra and Nehemiah as this initial group returns back to Judah, to Jerusalem, there is this feeling of optimism. Uh, there is this feeling of hopefulness regarding their nation. They want to start rebuilding again, first the temple and then Jerusalem. There's excitement and there's a motivation to begin rebuilding the temple. And they go back with virtually nothing, but they're determined that they want to build the temple. They want to start worshiping the God of Israel. So despite having nothing, despite the problems of, of all of their enemies trying to, to cause confusion, etc., they're going to start building the temple. There is this excitement. And above all, there is this renewed expectation that God would restore his covenant with them and restore with them all of his blessings that, that he promised, at least as they understood his promises, and that Israel would be great again, 
back to the time of King David, back to the time of, of King Solomon. That was kind of the expectation. And again, you kind of read some of these things in Ezra and Nehemiah. However, you'll also read in Ezra and Nehemiah that very shortly, in a very short period of time, this excitement, this, this uh, optimism, this, this uh, wanting to return to a worship of the God of Israel very quickly turns to despair, very quickly turns to this discouragement, like not, in a, not over a period of years, but very, very quickly, probably a matter of very, very few months, both because of the problems they're having amongst themselves and also because of the problems of their enemies. And the rebuilding actually slows down. It actually stops for a while. And this renewed obedience that they had said to Ezra and Nehemiah, the things you say we will do, that's what they said to Ezra and Nehemiah, very quickly turned to disobedience. So in short, by the time Malachi arrives, people's expectations about God's blessing had not yet materialized as they, again, expected them to. And so where was the splendor that they had been anticipating? Where were all the blessings that they thought that God was going to give them as they return and start worshiping the God of Israel? Where is this great renewal and revival that God had promised through the former prophets? And thus, I think in chapter 3, verse 7, God gives us a summary of what he says about his people. He says, they resorted to the ways of their forefathers by rejecting God. That's what God says about the people of Malachi's time. Had God forgotten them? The people start asking some questions. Had he lost his love for them? Was the worship of the God of Israel all in vain? Because as they looked around, it certainly looked like that there was no benefit whatsoever in following God, and we'll see more of this shortly. Israel had come to believe that the worship of God was tiresome. And then God says something else, which in a context of that time is very significant. Eating a meal together, joining each other at a, at a table, was so significant. It, it, was, it was a true time of fellowship. And your concern and love for the person at your table, and hence, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what awaits us? A banquet with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, what does God say? He says that, that there was contempt for the Lord's table. Chapter 1, verse 13. And, and thus, the atmosphere that had embraced Judah by the time of Malachi was one of spiritual apathy not many years after they returned from captivity where they had made this renewal to obey the God of Israel. There was a form of godliness, that is true, but there was no genuine love for the God of Israel. And so with this background then, God begins to answer some of the questions that they sort of publicly have. And God says, no, I have loved you. And all you have to do is look at the history that I have loved you. And he points to the history and says his love for Jacob, the Judah's descendants, had always been there. That God had always protected Jacob from his enemies. To such a degree that God says the Lord will be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. 
And indeed, if we go through scripture from a historical perspective, we can note the numerous times, numerous times that the name of the Lord was indeed magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Think of Captain Naaman, a Gentile. He goes back and he says to his king, you know, I have to worship the God of Israel. Matter of fact, he asks God for forgiveness when he goes into the temple of Dagon with his king. We think of Rahab. We think of Ruth, the Moabitess. We think of Balaam's attempt to curse Israel. Or think of other Gentiles. What happened with King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, there are some theologians that are quite adamant that he became a believer in the God of Israel. God's name magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Think of Darius. And look what he said. The God of Israel is the one to be worshipped after he saw evidence of the God of Israel. We think of Mordecai. We think of Esther in a foreign land and how the God of Israel was magnified. But to us, I think it's clear when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread out throughout the whole world. Sometimes we read news and we say, my goodness, what's happening to the church? But we also read news and we see the gospel of Christ just impacting nations which, you know, a number of years ago never heard of Christ. And so in, chap in verse 11, twice, God says, my name will be great among the nations, says God Almighty. That was true then. And folks, despite what is happening will happen, we've got to believe that. But in the meantime, God is particularly hard on the religious leaders of the day. Those with pomp and ceremony who supposedly were to be the teachers and the true representatives of God's law who publicly said, this is what God says. And yet God said, instead of proclaiming the truth, they pervert God's laws. They twist it totally. Instead of offering an unblemished offering, they present God not the best, which God says, unblemished, but God says, you present to me the blind, you present the lame, the sick. Later on, and it says, you also present to me what you have stolen. In other words, there's absolutely no sacrifice on their part. They go and steal someone else's, and they offer that to God. And God says, you wouldn't do such a thing to a human governor. You know what a human governor would do to you. And you dare make these offerings to me? But verse 8 to 10, I will not accept those offerings. This apathy, this callous attitude toward God resulted in the people beginning to decide what should be acceptable to God. Never mind what God says. God should accept what I think he should accept. After all, look what I'm doing. I'm offering a blind and the lame. They don't get that part. There's no fear, there's no love or respect for the God of Israel. Their religion had become merely a ritual. An external act was perceived as a must. Just let, let people see me go to the temple. Let people see me give an offering to the priests. And then that's it, we go home. And no genuine worship of God. Their heart was cold. Their heart was stone. As we read Malachi, as I read Malachi... We are struck by the sin of the people. I mean, it's mentioned in a number of places. The sin of adultery, the sin of oppression of the poor, 
the sin of abusing their wives, the sin of divorce, the sin of, of oppressing the wives of their youth, of stealing God's tithes, of ungodly marriages. And God lays the blame at the feet of the priests who are primarily who are supposed to teach his ways. But God says, actually, you encourage this sin. They go ahead and said, no, this is fine. Don't worry about what God says. This is all fine. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, the rebuke by God to the priests is, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant, says the Lord of, God, Lord of hosts. And again, I, I just don't think it's a stretch when you read that and what's happening in the world, what the, our religious leaders, some of our religious leaders are telling us. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Folks, believers in Jesus Christ today are called priests and are responsible to know the truth and stand up for the truth. And the message for us as priests, of course, is there's no animal sacrifices to offer to God, but each of us is to offer us ourselves as a living sacrifice. But we have to ask ourselves, do we approach, do I approach our worship of God today and every day in a careless, casual manner, offering what we think God ought to accept? I was raised in a certain orthodox where the appearance of going to church was extremely, extremely important. My point is not to condemn, but the external was what was important. And you had to dress right the whole thing. Or do we offer up a spiritual sacrifice to God only through what God says is acceptable? And that is through Jesus Christ. It's only through him that any offering is acceptable. Otherwise, you and I are offering up our righteousness. You and I are offering up our goodness. And God says, first of all, I will not accept it. For one reason, our righteousness and our goodness is as filthy rags. I didn't die for my sins. But the sad reality of people of Malachi, of the people of Malachi's time is this. They were so callous, they were so hardened to the things of God. To me, as I read this, it doesn't even appear that they knew what they were doing in many cases was wrong. And, and God reprimands the people for various sins, as I just mentioned, and yet they answer back as, as if dumbfounded, dumbstruck, and says, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. What, what do you mean what we're doing is wrong? How are we despising your name, 1-6? How are, have we defiled you, 1-7? For what reason do you accept our offering? Sorry, for what reason do you not accept our offering, 2-14? How have we wearied you, God, 2-17? How have we robbed you, 3-9? What have, have we spoken against you? 3.13. In other words, it didn't take long for the excitement as they've returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem and Judah, the excitement of following the word of God in Nehemiah's time to this particular state of a simple religious ritual now in Malachi's time. Hardened hearts indicating no spiritual discernment whatsoever concerning the things of God. No conviction that their actions were actually sin. 
I mean, part of it is because they were encouraged by the priests. No understanding of God's word, no attempt at trying to learn it. Their worship of God had now become a meaningless ritual in which the outwardly act was the most important. Let's just go to the temple. Let's just make our offering. Let's make sure people, people see us. The external was now the paramount. But in all of this, they were offending God. What was the result? Well, in the final analysis, the result was this horrible rejection by God. What could be worse, folks, than us being rejected by God? Nothing. But we'll leave that. Now, so I ask, what is the impact, or what was the impact on society? In other words, what happens when men and women reject the teaching of God and they decide what God should accept from me and not. Well, let's listen to the teaching of the priests. Here's what they, were, they said. Chapter 2, verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or another question is, where is the God of justice? In other words, there's absolutely no conviction of sin. Or, or God ignores sin. And it really doesn't matter what you do. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Is it a far stretch to put that in the context of today? The standard of what or who ought to be acceptable to God was now not God himself, but man had become that moral standard. The thinking was, and I think is, how can a just God reject anyone? God would never do such a thing. Isn't God loving? Isn't God kind? After all, aren't we all God's children? And so the thinking is, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Corinthians is very clear to us, I mean, as our other passages, where ours, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, ours is not to judge. Uh, God is the final judge. And we as believers in Jesus Christ have to be very, very careful in our attitude toward others, particularly, of course, non-believers, and what we say to them, those types of, types of things. But we must always proclaim that which is evil before God remains evil and will never change. God is and always will be the standard for our behavior, despite what the world and religious systems are pushing upon us. And again, the same thinking is repeated in 3, chapter 3. And the people say, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it when we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now, we call the arrogant, blessed, and not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. In other words, in summary, it is absolutely useless to serve God. God, God winks at sin. Why obey God? Because look what God's doing. He's ignoring the wicked. As a matter of fact, the wicked, it appears to us, are being built up. Psalm 73, the psalmist goes through a very similar phase. He looks around and he says that he sees the rich and the proud prosper. 
And he begins to feel sorry for himself. And he ponders the exact same question that these people had reached a conclusion on. And I would suggest to you that it's the same question many people have asked as they looked, uh, looked around. And these people have concluded it's useless to serve God. All the benefits are enjoyed by the ungodly. God doesn't punish them. Then why not be like them? I want to be like that because you know what? I can be arrogant. I can be rich. I can live and do exactly what I, as I want. I want to live like them. That was their conclusion. The psalmist of the reached a different conclusion. In 73, it says, he went into the house of the Lord, and there he realized their end. These people did no such thing. They didn't go into the house of the Lord. They didn't read God's law. How was their conclusion arrived at? Their conclusion was arrived at when they said, the rich prosper, that's how I want to live. Their conclusion was arrived at by looking at the world, by listening to the religious leaders and said, it's okay. Everything is good before God. They expected and wanted God's material blessing. And because their expectations were not met, the people turned from God and say some pretty horrible things about God. Now, this is a stretch, and please check it out. But here's what they say. They accuse him of ignoring obedience. They accuse him of ignoring sacrifices and rewarding the arrogant and evil person. I don't know, as I understand the New Testament, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it's no wonder that God has rejected them. But, but this is the level to which the people in general had sunk to. Chastising God. They had wandered from God, had stubbornly resisted God's call to return to him. And so instead, they start turning on God and accusing him. And again, as I read Malachi, I read about a sensitive God. Not one who's going to crush me the second I do something evil. I read about a sensitive God calling back a hardened and callous people, so hardened that they imagine that they're meeting all the divine requirements and ask, what do you mean we're doing something wrong? And in short, Malachi presents us with a picture of a people who have a form of, but void of any love for their God. In their mind, fulfilling all the external requirements of their religion was paramount, but having hearts of stone. And I would say, as I understand Scripture, not only from the Old Testament, the New Testament, this form of godliness, without power, without love for God, breaks the heart of God, if I can use human terms. We are constantly drawn to a picture of a loving, sensitive God, redeeming a people, delivering people from slavery, from their enemies, and yet, man turns away f- from this God and offers the God who's done this their second best. A- and instead, they turn to a God made in their own image and actually make gods in their own image. And God says to these people, that's adultery, that's idolatry, that's unfaithfulness. And he says, there is a coming judgment. First of all, though, he says from verses three, six, chapter 3, 16 onward, there's good news. 
So the Lord does distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. They were and are those who fear God, who respect God, who consider what God has done for them, those who seek to exalt the name of the Lord of Jacob. And Malachi says, for these, there's a book of remembrance that was written before God. And I suggest it's exactly the same book found in Revelation, where those that are truly God's children are written in that book, and it will be impossible to have those names blotted out. Despite the pressures of the world, despite the pressures of any religious system, these folks have remained true to God to the end. And so how does Malachi present God's judgment on the ungodly? Let me first say that there are some commentators that look at chapter 3 to the end as the second coming of Christ. Uh, there is, this is the final judgment. Not all, but some. And I just want to, because that's a very common approach. Um, that may be true. That may be true. However, in that the passage begins, in that, that context, chapter 3, begins with God sending his messenger. In that the passage begins with the coming of the day of the Lord in chapter 3. The context, I suggest, and the other side suggests, is primarily on the first coming of Jesus Christ. These verses mentioned here in Malachi are mentioned in the New Testament as speaking of Jesus Christ fulfilling those words in Malachi. So while there may be some application to a final judgment, because these are mentioned in the New Testament as fulfillment, I would suggest to you this is primarily talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so for these people then, belief in the Messiah which they expected, which you know, the Jewish land expected, in the messenger which they were expecting and had promised, they were promised, will not be as they think will take place. It will not be a great tall Saul coming in like a general liberating Israel it will not be a restoration of some idealistic Jewish land and world with all of Israel's enemies acquiescing to Israel's glory and splendor. That's not what Malachi says. That was the religious view. That's the religious leader's view. That's man's view. No, no. God's view is that there will be splendor. There will be glory. There will be a preeminence but that is going to rest solely on the Lord who's coming. That's where it's going to rest, not on some piece of real estate. And that Lord will pass judgment. His coming, chapter 3, verse 2, will be like a refiner's fire. And again, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, it says it will be like a burning furnace. And so in the context that the primary uh, point here is the first coming of Jesus Christ, the question is, in what sense is the coming of the Lord, the first coming of Christ, like a burning furnace, like a refiner's fire? Well, Christ answers that for us. Because there is an immediate sense in which the coming of Christ brings judgment instantly. In Luke chapter 12... And Luke chapter 12 has as its theme, warning of disbelief. 
And Jesus speaks of his coming. And he says, not to bring peace, but to bring division. And then he adds in verse 49 of chapter 12, I have come to bring fire upon the earth. In other words, what Christ is saying, by his coming, it will be clearly identifiable who is a faithful believer and who is not. His presence, if you will, is like that refiner's fire. Those that believe in his coming, that he came, that he lived, that he suffered, that he died, rose again, sits at God's right hand, those people that believe and accept that are refined like pure silver, pure gold. But those that reject him, as chapter 4 mentions, will be burnt in a furnace. Christ's first coming is that refiner's fire. We either believe him or we do not. It's that clear. There is no intermediate state. This then is the Lord whom they expected, but they didn't see. It's not the human deliverer from their human enemies, but rather the Lord who separates the righteous from the evil ones, blessing the righteous, passing judgment on those who reject the Son of God. But Malachi presents us, or gives us evidence, of another theme of Scripture, which, again, I suggest is one of the, the importance as to why Malachi coincidentally is the, I use that in quotes, of course, is the last book of the Old Testament. It is not coincidental that Malachi is the last of the prophets. And as we read Malachi, he, he repeatedly, he's often quoted in the New Testament, and he repeatedly points to the Messiah. It is not coincidental that once again in Malachi, we have a a, a period where there's a very brief period of spiritual renewal, but very shortly, once again, the people turn away from God. And so, is this not the state of God's chosen people since Abraham? Even more so, is this not the state of man since creation? Adam and Eve rebelled, they were cast from the garden and brought on death. A few verses after, it says that the people's hearts were continually evil and God brought a flood. Did the flood clean up people's hearts? A few chapters later, it says the same thing. People's hearts were evil. And so after a while, God chooses a nation to bless. He picks out the smallest nation, the weakest nation to bless and have of his own. But the biblical record is what? These people were constantly turning away, a constant rejection of their heavenly father to follow after man-made idols. I mean, right after they they, they were released from Egypt, they go and make an idol. And, And you read Kings, and you read Samuel, and you read the prophets, they all record the same thing a very short period of spiritual renewal, they turn away. God has to act, spiritual renewal, turn away. God acts, it's just constant. And I would say to us that Malachi, as the last book of the Old Testament, is a summary of the spiritual condition of humanity. On our own man, you and me, are incapable of pleasing God because man is always falling short. 
or put it in the context of Scripture, man is always sinning. Now, there may be, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, there may be periods of love and devotion, and we want to hold that onto that forever. But sadly, it's like a roller coaster, is it not? It doesn't last forever. And I have three examples. David was a man after God's own heart. We know that. And you read Samuel and Kings. How many times did he fall? Look at some of the horrible things that he did. We have Peter who publicly, who publicly denied Christ three times. Then we have the Apostle Paul, writer likely of two-thirds of the New Testament, and he says he was the chief of sinners. That's the spiritual condition of humanity. On our own, we are incapable of pleasing God. And so we have in Malachi the revelation of human failure before God. And again, I don't think it's coincidental. It's the last book. And Malachi teaches that man cannot on his own have a true loving relationship with God. That's us. And so Malachi teaches us constantly we need a mediator and always pointing to that mediator because we've always fallen short. Someone to lift us up before God, but of course, more than just lift us up, lift us up acceptable before God. And God, as it were, sees man's incapability of serving him, and thus immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve, God promises a Messiah. Someone who's going to intervene on behalf of humanity, as the Apostle John says, someone who is an advocate for us. Not just anyone, but someone who has satisfied all of God's requirements, all of God's laws, who is sinless, who is perfect, and that is none other than God's only Son. And of course, the advocate is not like our understanding of what an advocate is, someone who represents us. No, the Scripture says he takes on our very nature and suffers the due of sin that his Father has pronounced on our sin, death by means of probably the most horrible way to die, death on a cross. That's our advocate. And so I suggest to you that Malachi in the Old Testament ends in a very striking similarity to how the Old Testament began. We have the ending of the Old Testament. And this is what Malachi says. Man has fallen short and points us to a savior. The Old Testament began with man falling short, Adam and Eve. And God says, I will send a messenger to restore you to me. Malachi ends with the people sending, and God once again says, I will send a Messiah, a messenger, to restore you to me. And he did. He came, God's own son. He lived, he died, suffered, and then rose again and sits at his father's right hand right now. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, I would ask us, is what will we do? How will we respond to God's sending his son? Let's pray. Father, 
we just think of who you are in light of our own sinfulness, and we cannot stop but thank you for Jesus Christ, our intercessor, our advocate, our redeemer, our friend. And so may you accept our thanks, may you accept our praise, our worship this morning solely because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We thank you in his name. Amen.